Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. I'm really excited uh, with this interview today because in the past with all of our episodes, Jamie, we've always kind of brought in honeybee researchers. We've reviewed peer review publications. Um, we've brought on scientists. But this year and kind of moving forward, we're hoping to interview more beekeepers, especially beekeepers who have made a living in the honeybee world. And so in the next couple of years, hopefully we'll bring in speakers and kind of highlight different ways that beekeepers have started to make a living and have a full-time job in the honeybee industry. And so today we're interviewing Karen Boger with Tribe out of Melrose, Florida. And Karen, Karen, I've known you for a couple of years now, and you've taught at our bee college and you sell beautiful art and you've just done so much with honeybee art. So I'm really excited to talk to you about all of that today. Th thanks so much for joining us. Great. A pleasure to be here and honor. Thank you. So we love to let our listeners know about our speakers and a little bit of history as far as the honeybee world. And so how did you get started with honeybees? And so what's kind of your background and story with how you got into the beekeeping world? Well, my girlfriend was a beekeeper and she decided that she wasn't going to keep bees anymore and she wanted to give um, my son a hive. So we decided that the best thing to do was to go to the University of Florida Bee College. And so we started attending classes and learning about bees. And that's pretty much how it all started. And then we got the hive and here we are now. <laughs> but I want to add one little thing to that. During the course of our education, uh, we met Michael Young, and I took his encaustic class. And so the rest is kind of history after that. So, um, But, yes, a very fun and interesting way to start keeping bees. And we're still keeping bees, and that's been over 10 years ago. So, so Karen, I really okay. like that story. I mean, Michael Young is a really cool guy, right? Like he's a, a beekeeper in Northern Ireland. He's a trained chef. He he dabbles in beekeeping art as well and honey judging. So he gets to travel a lot, especially around the U.S., providing that training. And it's interesting to me that you kind of link your movement into bee art through Michael and the Bee College. That's exciting. And I love the fact that you started with bees first and then you kind of expanded. So that's that's what I want to know. I want to know how you like, you know, you, you started with bees, but I want to know, you know, what it was about that lecture from Michael, what it was about meeting him that that helped you grow the little the little art business that you have, because you do so many types of things with bee art right now. So how, how did you was it a natural movement from beekeeping to art? How, how did you end up incorporating that into into your business? Yes, it was a natural movement. What happened was I started making, I had all these products from the hive and I started making like honey and olive oil soap. And my girlfriend came back to me and she said, you should, you know, make felted soap. And I go, what's that? And she said, Google it. 
So I Googled it. And of course, I looked at that and said, I can do that. And so I started making the felted soap with the bee motifs on it. And of course, that expanded into all of the other felted art I do with the bee motifs. Now, the encaustics, um, I studied art at the University of Florida, and I was anxious to get back into that area because I retired from my regular job, and I was so happy to be able to move into that area. And um, Michael inspired that option to take to take our beeswax, which I also do with the candle making, and um, do something further with it. And I had never, you're going to laugh, I had never heard about encaustic painting. And I was just amazed because this, this was back in like 100 to 300 AD, very, very old. And the Greeks and Romans, this was a very common way that they painted. So I was so jazzed to find something that I could do with my bees and also with um, my art. And it just kind of opened the door for everything. That's you know what, Karen, I have never yeah. heard of the term felted soap before. I don't think before you just said oh. it. Okay. You can you describe that a little that? bit? Yeah, absolutely. Sure, I, I, I can. It's a brilliant idea. I did not think of it. I wish I had, but with your handmade soap, you want it to last as long as possible. Well, what I do is I wet felt the wool and wool in itself is antifungal and antibacterial. So it never gets nasty. It always stays very nice. But it, I felt it onto the soap. And then um, once it dries, I come back and I have a straight needle and I put in the accents. And, and I love to do bees and flowers. So that's one of my favorite motifs. And the beautiful thing about felted soap is that it makes your handmade soap last way longer because it's not going all over your shower. It's staying inside your wool. So it's just a really cool little thing. And um, I love it. I love making it. And each one is unique and a piece of art. So I tell people, don't use the top part of the soap. Use the bottom. The top part can stay beautiful in your soap dish. You can only wash with one side at a time. Anyways, use the bottom and it'll stay beautiful for a couple of months. That is so neat. So you've brought Isn't up. That neat? That's so neat. I actually, I didn't know that. And so I feel kind of silly just like learning all this Don't as we're silly. sitting on the podcast, Jamie. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you asked and people always ask about it and I'm happy to explain it because it's really kind of how I started into the felting side of my art. So it's, yeah. It's so yeah. you've talked about felt, felted soap, candles, you kind of touched on encaustic painting. What other types of art do you produce and what other types of honeybee art exists out there? I know there's so much, but what do you do specifically? I do a lot of skin products. Uh, I make it with my beeswax. Um, and and or my honey, depending on what I'm making. I use very I make very practical things, um, wood polish, um, leather polish. Those are all things I also do with the beeswax. And then of course the skin salves are awesome. Um, they're great for your skin and beeswax in itself, as you know, has a natural sunscreen. So it's a really great product to put on your skin. Uh, my son makes a chapstick, and I also do a, a honey scrub, which is amazing. 
And um, I like that because I get to use my own honey with that, which is also really neat. And it's just amazing for your skin. So other, so many great things from the bees. Uh, the other product I really have gotten interested in uh, with my art is the echo printing. And that is a form of printing that I use uh, flowers and leaves and fruit to um, imprint on either watercolor paper or silk. And um, after that, I go ahead and um, finish it off with some watercolor accents. And, of course, what I love to say to people is the neatest thing about this art is it's all natural. And we wouldn't have any of this if we didn't have honeybees or pollinators. Let me say that, too. <laughs> so, Karen, you produce all of these wonderful things. How do you market it, right? You're not just producing it to use it. You're producing it to put it in the hands of others. So how do you market your art? Is it farmer's markets, art shows, et cetera? How, how can our listeners who are interested in getting and and the beekeeping art offload some of these great pieces that they're producing. Obviously, art shows and gallery shows. Um, I utilize them as well. Um, and then, of course, uh, the bee conferences and um, like yours, which is the University of Florida Bee College. But I do those in several different states. Primarily like to do uh, the bee conferences simply because most of uh, the things that I'm interested in and do relate to bees. So I love to be hands on and see people and talk to them and be able to explain. I love explaining about how they can do encaustic painting. I love um, giving samples of my products and sharing how they're done. So that for me is. Um, the best way to market. I give um, out cards, obviously, with my information on it. And I get plenty of people that contact me directly, either by text or, or email. So you know what, Karen, it's really funny. I Before I started working at the Honeybee Lab, I attended Bee College here. And one of the right. classes I attended was yours. It was your encaustic painting class. And I realized very quickly that encaustic painting is not my specialty. And so <laughs> I thought it was a lot of fun taking your class. And ever since, I mean, even before I've been at the Honeybee Lab, you've been involved with educating beekeepers um, about bee-related art. So I know you do our candle classes and our encaustic painting classes. So can you just tell us a little bit more about just your work with training beekeepers, some of the classes that you've taught and, and maybe just uh, a piece of advice for someone as far as myself getting into classes and where I could go for more um, artistic classes. Oh, okay. Well, obviously you can go online. That's a, that's a great avenue for all of us, especially just looking at what other artists are doing besides the fact that the YouTube videos give us tons of information on how to do things, which I've learned a lot from myself. Uh, the encaustics, especially, um, I would tell people that, you know, there's no not, no not way to do something. There's so many different ways you can approach it. Um, you're basically heating wax, but you don't always have to heat the wax. You can heat the tools. You can sculpt it. You can scratch it. You can paint it. You can draw it. Um, the canvases are limitless. You can use wood, uh, unbleached canvas watercolor paper, photo paper, or encaustic board, just to name a few. And the other thing is you can do it with a hot plate, a heat gun, 
a torch, a griddle. Um, I love the travel iron. That's what I love to use because I can take it with me anyway. And um, a wood burner is another thing that you can actually use that works very well. And I think if I was going to give some advice, the first piece of information I would say is there's no mistakes. With encaustic painting especially, uh, you can, if you don't like it, you can scrape it off or you can add more wax to it. Um, you can scratch into it. I mean, there's so many different things you can do, and you don't need to finish it right then. You can put it down and come back two or three weeks later and finish it at that point if you choose to. So it has a, a wonderful, um, I think of all the art mediums, it's one of the coolest ones because it has so many different avenues you can take. Um, the last thing I would say is learn your tools. Don't expect to do it the first time or the second time. You've got to learn your tool just like a carpenter has to learn his. And I think that's very important. And once you learn your tools, you'll be amazed at what you can do with, with beeswax. It's incredible. Does that answer your question? Yes, ma'am. Good. All right. So, Karen, one of the things I appreciate a lot about you is you're, you're not just kind of like a net, a net producer of art and a net receiver of the benefit of that. You also pay it forward by teaching other folks about that. And as we've mentioned multiple times, kind of throughout this interview, you have offered training opportunities here at our own UFI for Speed College. But I want you to talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. I, you know, tell us a little bit about your work training other beekeepers, because just before you do, I've got like zero art talent in my body. So <laughs> if I if I wanted to to branch my beekeeping endeavor out into some sort of art, I would need someone to teach me. So how do you <laughs> how, tell, tell us a little bit about how you work with beekeepers in that regard so that you can introduce them into the world of producing bee themed art? Okay. Well, one of the things I love to do is show them a lot of the different types of encaustic painting that you can do. So that opens a huge door because a lot of people are intimidated because they say to me, I can't draw. Okay. That doesn't matter. You don't need to draw. You, you can do amazing things with the wax without saying, um, I'm drawing a bee or I'm drawing a flower or I'm drawing a tree. You don't have to do any of that. So the first thing I love to show people is that the cost and the ease of doing encaustic paintings. And um, I have a little tiny tool bag that includes everything I need to go anywhere and do an encaustic. And that includes my travel iron, my encaustics, and my photo paper. So the other advantage to that, as with many art forms, and I love to talk about this because I'm also a potter, you, it cost me thousands of dollars to set up my pottery studio, but you know what? It's under $50 to get everything you need to do in caustic paintings. So, and there's probably people that could do it for less than that. So I try to also focus on the affordability and the ease of being able to get set up and do, do encaustics. When I'm sharing, um, the class with people, one of the things I love to do is let people go ahead and take the irons and the wax and sit down and play with it. I think that hands-on is one of the best ways to try it. And, and when people are saying, oh my gosh, what, what should I do? Well, one of the things, if you really want to get into encaustics and it's very simple, go out and collect leaves and flowers on your property. Let them dry out, flatten them on a piece of paper. You can come back 
and you can add the wax to those on a, a greeting card, on a on a photo card, any of those kinds of things, and add your wax, and you've created an encaustic painting. And it's using a collage technique, but it's still encaustics, and it can get you started into how you may proceed further. Well, Karen, I think I'm going to leave my office now to go pick up some flowers and leaves outside. <laughs> and if Jamie asks, <laughs> and if Jamie asks what I'm doing, I'm going to tell him that I'm working. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I won't tell him either. Amy. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Karen, I am very excited and I'm really glad that you were able to come on and talk to us today about your beekeeping arts and crafts. And um, I encourage our listeners to come take one of your classes. This, I'm going to sell bee college a little bit, but I'd encourage our listeners to come visit us in Florida. You know, we hold bee college every March and August and you're you're the go-to person that teaches a lot of our art classes that we have here at our bee colleges at the University of Florida. So um, thank you so much for that. And I just wanted to ask, is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners before we end today? Um, just, you know, be open to trying new things. You're a beekeeper. I mean, you to me, you've already stepped out there and are willing to try something different and unique in itself. And so this is just another part uh, and, and an artsy part of beekeeping. And I've I, I can't say how much I love what I do. I love what I do. And I'm so grateful that I, I live here and I had the opportunity to go to the University of Florida Bee College. I can't, I always encourage people to do that because it's a whole new world and it's certainly one that we need to explore as individuals. So um, I want to thank you guys uh, for allowing me the opportunity to do what I do. And I'd just like to say hello to Adam Strickland. He was the young man I sent to you. And, um, of course, you guys were great with him, and I really appreciate that. All right, Karen, thank you. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. All right, you guys, we appreciate you, and I will see you in March. We'll see you in March. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. did not we we did not pay Karen to say all that stuff I don't I don't think did you pay her to say that stuff <laughs> <laughs> no there's a lot of nice uh UF shout outs there so we're happy yeah. about that <laughs> she's basically your success story from B college I can't believe she started at B college and yeah, then you amazing. know just kind of went into the whole art world I was gonna say I love the fact that she kind of got introduced to it through Michael Young because if, if you're listening out there folks around the world there's, there's just he's a really nice guy he does a lot for beekeeping and bee training and it just has been very instrumental at least here in the U.S. on training beekeepers about all kinds of things art uh, culinary skills with beekeeping related stuff as well as of course honey judging is what he's known for but it's neat that he he introduced Karen to this and Karen really took off running with this particular um, hobby or craft. Yeah, she said that was what over 10 years ago. And so she's been in the industry doing art and selling art and teaching art. And so I think that's really, really fun. So something that we were discussing, you know, she talked about the felted soap, she talked about candles, we really got into encaustic painting, which I think is, you know, very near and dear to her. But there are so many other pieces of art as well that 
uh, are related to honeybees. So I just wanted to kind of maybe discuss back and forth on, you know, the other things out there that are honeybee art related. Amy, I think this is really important, right? We're, we're talking about ways that beekeepers can make money through beekeeping. And, and the very first thing we're highlighting is art. And Karen talked a little bit about the things that she does from an artistic perspective, but you're spot on. There's so much more even still to beekeeping art. There's photographs, there's paintings, there's sculptures, there's all of the sewing arts, you know, crocheting, um, knitting, all of these kinds of things that kind of often feature bees. There's sculpting, there's stained glass work that includes beekeeping or bee beekeeping themed art. And I've seen it all. I mean, we have at our UFIFS Bee College, we have an art category in our honey show, other honey shows around the world have art categories. And you honestly never know what you're going to see. I've seen 3D stained glass sculpting with bees. And so, so the point is, is, you know, maybe encaustic beeswax painting is not your thing. Maybe photographs is not your thing. Maybe knitting's not your thing, but there's, but there's, there's a little bit of artists in all of us and, and all of us have an opportunity to move our beekeeping hobby into an uh, an art perspective in a way that in fact might actually even add to some of the income that we receive by keeping bees. Yeah, absolutely. Just like you mentioned, I feel like people are so creative when it comes to these things. I mean, you'll go and you'll think that you're just going to go see a photo or maybe some jewelry, but then you I don't know. You just kind of see the creativity that obviously, I mean, maybe I don't have that creative side even though I try to pretend like I do, but it's just really amazing to see everything that people have come up with. Yeah, I think one of the best ways to figure out what are the different things that different ways that folks incorporate bees and beekeeping into art is just go to a honey show and look at the art mm -hmm. category. You know, you just mentioned jewelry. I hadn't even thought about jewelry, but you know, bee themed jewelry is very popular. In fact, when you get into beekeeping, if you look closely enough, you'll see honeybees and beekeeping are absolutely everywhere. When I travel the world, you know, one of my favorite places to visit are these ornate um, cathedrals and all monastery stuff like that. Well, you'll often see bees beekeeping in the stained glass windows, as an example. When you look at Egyptian hieroglyphics, you'll see honeybees and 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 hives and, and Egyptians working beekeeping and hieroglyphics. So it's just everywhere, and it's a really uh, neat thing to do. One of my favorite current ways to see people kind of express themselves artistically with bees is there's a gentleman I know, a beekeeper, who will on a canvas create multiple layers of colored beeswax so for example he might put down red dyed beeswax and then black dyed beeswax on top of that and then blue dyed beeswax on top of that and then yellow dyed beeswax on top of that and create this kind of just this layered colors of beeswax and then he cuts into the beeswax to the layer that he most wants to show kind of the color layer that he wants to highlight so what you end up getting is this kind of painting this this encaustic carved 3d that's beeswax so cool. colored art that's just really neat and so just go to an art show that features bees or go to a honey show that has an art category and you'll be blown away and might get some ideas and and as i've shared kind of early on and we talked with karen about you can make money doing this it's another good way to supplement your beekeeping enterprise 
Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, typically when you go to any conference all around the world, there'll be a honey show, right? And so there are also honey judge trainings and honey judge programs um, around the world. And so it's just really fun and interesting to see all the different unique pieces everywhere. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome back to the question and answer segment. We hope you've enjoyed listening to all of the American Beekeeping Federation live Q&A sessions. Here is the last one. I will let our audience members take it away as Jamie and Amy answer their questions. First off, I'd like to say that I'm pretty new to beekeeping. I'm on my third year. I've got an opportunity to buy some queens, uh, I guess still in the carcass, where they'll be hatched out in a day or two, come about mid-February. My two questions are, one, is they're only like $4 a piece. Is it good to buy those in the middle of February? Will there be enough drones? And two, would it be okay if I take, like, uh, make a two-frame nooks and put those new queen that's still in the little carcass there in that nook. I live here in Middleburg, North Florida, so you know my weather type. Uh, I know you can't predict the weather, but those are the two questions that I have. So the first question is, is it okay to get queens this time of year? Is it okay to make a split this time of year? Yes, basically in the middle of February. All right, so it's funny because the question that I was going to ask him is where is he from? Because uh, We'll start with two things now. So first of all, we're doing this podcast the first week of January in 2023. So most bee or queen producers around the country are maybe some months away from being able to produce queens. In order to be produced queens, you've got to have a couple of things going on. Number one, you've got to have a colony whose queen is laying eggs because it takes offspring to produce queens. Number two, you've got to have a colony that is invested in the production of drones because drones have to be available to mate with those queens that are being produced. And for the vast majority of North America at this time of year, you're not going to have that situation. It is certainly possible in some parts of Southern Florida or maybe Southwestern US that you can have this happen. So I'm not going to speak towards whether or not this particular breeder is able to accomplish that. However, he or she has queens available. If drones are available and offspring are available and grafting's possible this time of year, then in theory, you can get queens I've known some breeders who will bank queens. That simply means they will have produced queens at a time of the year that producing queens is possible. Here in Florida, that might be all the way through October or early November. And then they would bank those in a colony so that they could, um, upon demand, take those queens out of the bank and mail them to someone who is. So I don't know the particular situation that you're describing, but it's conceivably possible to get queens this time of year, although it has to be from a very specific area where they can be produced. Number two, what about making splits this kind of time of year? So <laughs> very, very few of you are probably from Florida, right? Which Because this is the American Beekeeping Federation. So there's 50, you know, 49 others, about to say 50 other states. There's 49 other states and lots of U.S. territories and things like that. So the reason I'm saying this is a lot of you are going to hear this statement and kind of chuckle. But this is the cool time of year in Florida. And I know you're chuckling because you're like, whatever, dude. It's like zero degrees at home and we're under six feet of snow. But it is the cool time of year in Florida. So January and February are often difficult times to predict. So conceivably, if you've got a very strong colony and you can make from it a very strong nuke and you happen to have a fully mated queen, 
from a breeder, conceivably you can make a nuke and put that queen in there and things be okay. I can't predict that there won't be a cold front that happens right after that. So you'll have to watch it closely, make sure it has enough food if it needs food. Um, I will say, generally speaking, these types of beekeeper activities are done in early spring rather than kind of mid to late winter. But it is certainly conceivably possible that you could pull it off this time of year. Possible. Hi, um, my question is on EFB. I know I watched a podcast you did a long time ago on EFB. I had lost multiple hives last summer. I, have, I live in Colorado. I have about 10 that are gonna make it through the winter. When will they get EFB again? And is the, can I use the comb when I do that? So I have a double deep, they make it. Can I use the comb to make a split? Or is that comb still gonna have the bacteria in it? So really, really good questions. Thank you so much about a European Foulbird. Um, so, were, was that the last question? I didn't wanna cut you off. And the follow-up question is, should I prophylactically treat in the spring for EFB? When, and I have prescribed medication. Good, yep, all right. So there are two types of foul brood there's, that, that we struggle with in our colonies. I keep making sure that I'm on time. There's two types of foul brood that our colonies struggle with. It's American foul brood and European foul brood. And they're caused by two different um, bacteria. American foul brood is Penibacillus larvae and European foul brood is Melissococcus plutonius. And American foul brood, you, I know you asked about EFB wherever you went, but oh, perfect. Um, I'm gonna deal with American foul brood first. American foul brood has a spore stage and a vegetative stage. And that vegetative stage for, for ease of discussion is what I call the active stage. So when American foul brood um, gets into a colony, it gets into the brood, it kills the brood, and anything that would reduce its populations or stress it, it can enter a spore phase. And the spore phase is remarkably resilient. So you can treat a colony for American foul brood and you will kill the vegetative stage, but the spores will still be in the colony. So if your colonies are stressed three months, six months, eight months, two years later, 10 years later conceivably, and you've got the spores present in the colony, the spores can, what I say, reanimate, and you've got an active American foul brood infection all, all over again, which is why the recommendation with American foul brood is if you get it, you just burn the colonies because it's there and it will always be there. I know that that's not popular amongst everybody, but that's kind of the strongest recommendation for dealing with American foul brood. And I taught American foul brood first because European foul brood is not similar in that context. It produces a spore type stage that is not nearly as resistant or resilient as American foul brood is. So when you get European foul brood, I think it's a reasonable recommendation. And I recognize speaking in front of an audience like this and speaking to all of our listeners on the podcast, I'm making kind of these sweeping claims and I've got a huge spectrum of people from I will do whatever it takes to keep my bees alive to I don't want to do anything quote unnatural. But I, I think when you have European uh, uh, foul brood, it is a reasonable thing to do to treat with an antibiotic to try to solve that problem. That is my official take on it. I do recognize that there are other ways to handle European foul brood, requeen, feed, try to hope that they push through it. A lot of colonies will push through it, but I will tell you, this is just an anecdotal Jane experience to kind of get to your comments. When I first got to Florida, there were a lot of beekeepers who were kind of complaining about these mysterious brood deaths in late spring, kind of early summer, the crud. And I realize that there's lots of manifestations of this, so lots of things can cause it. Well, one of the most common things that we saw through all of this 
was European foul brood in, in a lot of these colonies. And what's interesting to me about it is European foul brood is not something that we teach much anymore, right? When's the last time you saw a talk on European foul brood? We see them on Varroa. I mean, heck, we see them on just one way of treating Varroa, right? Right before us, just oxalic acid. So the reason I'm pointing this out is it was so not talked about that it's almost one of those things that beekeepers just overlook. They see a brood disease that's screaming European foul brood, but because we don't think about it and talk about it, we call it the crud or melting disease. So I think it's a bigger deal than what most people believe. And I think when we see it, it is certainly something that I would give a green light to recommending the treatment of antibiotics. Your question was prophylactic treatment with antibiotics. And I'm not sure that the label of the available antibiotics permit prophylactic treatment. I, so all I can say to that, rather than speaking directly to it, is say you've got to follow the labels of the products. Um, I know that maybe one or two of the products allow it, but one or two of them don't. So I think it's easier to say follow the label. And I don't think I would recommend treating, I would not recommend treating prophylactically. Now your question, your follow-up question is, okay, I've had it. I treated in response to seeing it and it's gone away, but I've got these boxes. Is it going to come back later? And if you've really dealt with it, um, it should not come back later it, at any higher percent chance rate than it would normally get infected with the disease at, you know, on its own. But I will tell you, I have a colleague who sees this stuff predictably certain times of the year and she talks about it a lot coming off of certain nectar flows. So I think EFB is a big deal and we need to pay attention to it. They make these little neat tests that you can use to see if it's EFB. They're based on these ELISA tests, the same technology that you can use to determine if you're pregnant or not. And I think those are super useful to have in everybody's beekeeping boxes to say, you know, this is suspect, is it EFB? If it's EFB, then you take the steps necessary to deal with it. Okay, so I've got a follow-up just real quick. I'm gonna go a little past time because one, it's a break and two, we started a little late. And then we're gonna take one last question after that. But my follow-up was going to be, if you've opened the news today or have seen anything about honeybees, there is a vaccine that has just been approved. Has anyone else had that question or anyone had that or heard of it today? All right, so if you open the news and just type in honeybee vaccine, there is a vaccine that was just approved. And so what I wanted to ask you about since you've we've started talking about foul brood, Jamie, was can you kind of give us your take on, you know, your thoughts on the vaccine? <laughs> How is it going to work? How do you give a vaccine to a bee? Are they going to have to wear masks? <laughs> just wondering. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the spotlights are on me and I'm at a microphone and I'm answering questions about vaccines for a pathogen that's spreading around. And what are you, on your Facebook right I know, now? I'm all, what am I on Facebook? First of all, I don't have social media accounts. I like to live in the actual world. <laughs> Sorry, did that sound mean? I didn't mean it to be mean, but it's just real. No, the reason I'm giggling is because Amy texted me this morning while, because this is a cutout part. Of the, I live just close enough to here, about an hour and a half away, that it was really hard for me to divorce myself fully from my family. So I've had family responsibilities that I've had to go back and forth to. So last night I had to run home and watch my kids play a game. So I came back this morning and Amy texted me on the way this morning and said, I think there might be a question about this. You should read it. So I come into the building, completely forget that Amy had texted me about this. And so when I get here, I just remembered that Amy texted me about this. So I'm quickly trying to read what she texted me 
about this vaccine. Okay, so this chump won't be stumped. And I'll here tell I am. you what I what Facebook. I was told. Okay, so the vendor's actually here um, mm -hmm. as in the in the trade show, and he said that the vaccine is going to be disseminated through the worker bees when they go to feed the queen. What's going to happen is that that little piece of bacteria that's in the feed will go through the queen, and the idea, I guess, is that it would go through the egg and build immunity through. Her offspring. That's exactly what it says here. Oh my baby. gosh, that's so crazy! It's almost wow. like I know what's going on. One Thank of the you. beauties, one of the beauties about the podcast is we link stuff in the show notes. So while Amy was talking, I was like reading in real time, going, "That's exactly what it says." So we'll make sure and link about this in the show notes, and you can actually hear about it more from someone, not me, who knows a bit more about it. But I've I've heard rumors that this was coming. And um, I'm, I'm aware of the idea and the technology about it, but it's so new that I, I cannot answer the question intelligently. Maybe we should bring them on to interview them on the podcast. Sounds like a good podcast guest. All right. So Brilliant. we have, um, we have, yeah, we'll stump them instead. Let's see who the <laughs> chump is. So my question is about like how often queens defensively sting. Like one, one of my beekeeping mentors, he's been beekeeping 55 years and he's never gotten a sting from a queen, not even marking them or anything. So I'm just kind of curious about like how often that actually happens outside the hive. Yes, I love this question because um, uh, any, any, well, I won't ask that question because our listeners can't see you raise your hands, but there's some folks in here, I'm sure, who's been stung by a queen. Who's been stung by a queen? Two people. Nope. I've been stung by a queen. This is me Three raising people. my hand. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. So that's a great question. So queens sting queens, right? That's why they sting. They, they like when they emerge from a cell, they'll go and kill their sisters. If multiple ones emerge from the cell, they'll sting one another. So they are certainly programmed to sting one another. I've never seen queens return stings when workers are attacking them. I've never seen that. So I'm wondering if it's just like one of these things that they purely do for defense. On the other hand, I have handled, physically picked up thousands of queens. And I would bet, I'm not going to guess at the number of times I've picked up a queen, but I would guess in the thousands of times I've picked up a queen, I've been stung five times. So I do know they sting, and I don't know what I did different to elicit it, but I will say they will certainly sting when you grab them. But five out of thousands of times is how it's happened to me so does it hurt more no I'm usually going wow I'm getting stung by a queen that's so cool and so that's usually what's happening when it's happening so I, I like it when it happens because it's so uncommon you should all go get your queen to sting you and make a comment about it in our social media accounts so we can go from there all right all right all right thank you very much Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at ufhoneybeelab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.